This evening's scripture comes from Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown. Thanks for worshiping with us tonight. You have come uh, at a good night. Not only have we already had a great time of worship, but we will have food after the service. So we encourage you to stick around after. Uh, Bo will come up and give you some details in a little bit. But uh, we are not only having food tonight, but we're also having uh, our theological panel for the semester. Once a semester, we like to spend some time thinking about and talking about and hearing from some experts about some things that we have not gotten to in our sermon series. And so uh, after the service, we'll grab some pizza, and then we are having a theological panel on the topic of parenting. Um, And I want to encourage you to stick around for a couple of different reasons. Uh, One, there's going to be a wealth of wisdom up here um, to talk about parenting. So if you're a parent, uh, this is just great wisdom that you'll be able to receive tonight. And if you do not have children, we're going to talk about how the whole church can come around the next generation and can come around our kids to really disciple the next generation. So we want to encourage you to stick around for that. Tonight, we're continuing in this series that we're taking a look at Genesis and Exodus. We're not taking a look at every single verse and every single character, but we are taking a look at what God's people look like in the Old Testament. When we take a look at their lives and we take a look at God's interaction with them and the things he says and does to them, we can learn a lot about us as God's people, but we can more importantly learn something about the nature and character of God. Do you ever feel alone? The fact of the matter is that we can feel lonely or unseen or unheard, even in a room full of people. We can feel isolated. We can feel alone. We can feel unknown, even by those closest to us. But imagine this. Imagine if tonight you could hear about someone who sees you, who hears you, And knows you. Not only that, but I have even better news for you. It's the very God that created you and holds the world in his hand. The one that we just sang about, this is my father's world. What if this father, this God, this creator, this one that the whole Bible is about, could see you, could listen to you and know you? Well, the story that Andrew just read for us in this overview of Genesis 16 through 21 that we look at tonight will show us just that. Will show us the God that sees us, hears us, and knows us by name. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we want to continue to worship you. This is your world. 
We are made in your image. And Father, we want to see your heart. We want to reflect your heart to the world around us. God, I pray that each one here tonight would see how you see them, you listen to them, and you know them. And Father, because you know us, you can speak directly to us. And I pray that that's exactly what you would do tonight, that you would speak to each one. Thank you that you've already spoken. We pray that you would continue to speak through your word, your spirit, and your people here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open with me to Genesis 16. We're going to take a look at Genesis 16, uh, the verses that lead up to what Andrew just read for us. And then um, after we take a look at Genesis 16, I'll give you an overview of 17 through 21 because it's applicable to what we're talking about here tonight. Um, our PowerPoint is not working tonight. We need to run an update on, your compu- on our computers, and that always happens at the best time. So we do not have PowerPoint up here, so it'd be important if you pull up the scriptures with me in Genesis 16, starting in verse 1 through 3. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. This is Abram and Sarah that we've been introduced to. We were introduced to them a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, God takes this Abram, this man from a pagan nation and pagan people, and he says, I am going to make a great nation from you. And he reconfirms to him the covenant that he had made with his people. He gives them the commissioning that he had given Adam and Eve and then Noah. And now he gives it to Abraham that he's going to make his descendants great. He's going to be fruitful and multiply. But then we had talked about last week how the promise still has not come true. And Abram and Sarai are of an age where biologically they should not be able to have children. So as we pick up the story in Genesis 16, this actually starts when it says, now Sarai, in the original Hebrew, it's a continuation of the sentence that comes right before it. The reason is because the Hebrew author of this, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to know that the promise has still not been fulfilled. The promise has still not been fulfilled, and you can hear it in what Sarai says. You can hear the frustration. You can hear the unmet desires and the the promises that they've been given are not matching the reality of what they see once again. Abraham has been promised multiple times now a biological descendant that would multiply And many lands would belong to him and his offspring. And he still has no offspring. And the lands are in chaos. They still have not seen God's promise become a reality. Some of you have had something or now have something that you desire that God has not provided for you. Something that you feel in your heart is right and good and you want it with everything that you have. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a certain job, maybe it's just some direction to know what to do in life. 
we come to these points where we have something that we desire, we even think that God may have promised us something, but what we see with our eyes does not match up. And once again, as Genesis 16 starts, Sarai and Abram are in this situation. So they once again take matters into their own hands. They have a backup plan, just like they had in Genesis 15. Now, the promise has still not been fulfilled, so they have another plan. Sarai says, take my slave woman, the slave woman Hagar, and procreate through her, and then we'll call that son our son. We'll adopt him, we'll take him for our own, and that's how God's promise will be fulfilled. Just like you and me, when God doesn't come through, we have a backup plan, and we go to that. We see here in this passage and what Abram and Sarai choose to do, the very DNA of sin and the consequences of living autonomous from God, his promises, and his plan. We see here in this language, in verses 2 and 3, the very same Hebrew words used for Eve taking the fruit from the tree. We see the word behold, we say that I shall obtain and took. Just like Eve saw, desired, and took the fruit, here Sarai sees what she wants, she desires it, and she takes it and gives it to her husband to try to make God's promises come to pass. So first, it's very much like original sin. The second thing that it shows us about sin is this is what people of the Near East did. This was a custom that they would have if they didn't have a son for themselves. They would take a son in the household, a slave son, adopt them into their family, and then the inheritance and the family line would then be passed through that son. So here, with this unmet desire, with this promise that has not become a reality, Abram and Sarai see, take, desire, and also they do what their culture around them is doing. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6, but Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Abram and Sarai's backup plan fails spectacularly, and neither of them are happy with the consequences. When we read Old Testament passages similar to this one and many others we will read in Genesis and Exodus and so on, we come across things that are hard for us to understand. Or we look at them and say, God can't be okay with this, can he? One of the things that we see in scripture is this idea of polygamy, of these people that are supposed men of God who are married or sleeping with women that are not their primary wife. So they take on slave women and concubines and multiple wives. When we see this story, this is what we see throughout scripture. When men take matters into their own hands and they live a way not prescribed by God, there are always consequences. 
follow these people's stories as they take on concubines and slave women and multiple wives and you will see nothing but heartache and destruction. So we see the same for Abram and Sarai. They stepped outside of the promise of God. They enacted their backup plan and it blew up spectacularly in their face. Then something in the narrative happens and it's really extraordinary. The rest of this passage, this chapter, then begins to follow this slave woman, this Egyptian woman named Hagar. This is noteworthy because for the first time in scripture, a woman is exclusively the focus of the narrative. And instead of saying with Abram and Sarai, the promised couple, the promised family, the narrative is now going to switch and follow Hagar and is going to pick up her story multiple times in the next few chapters. So let's take a look again once more at the passage that Andrew read for us. Genesis 6, 16, 7 through 14. And the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he shall dwell over and against all of his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who had spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she she said, surely, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berlaha Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. So first, we need to answer the question, who is the angel of the Lord? This is one of 48 places in the Old Testament that scripture says the angel of the Lord. Some scholars believe that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. That when it says angel of the Lord, that is a pre-incarnate Christ, that uh, a pre-incarnate Christ shows up as an angel of the Lord and speaks as God. The other school of thought by scholars is that this is a messenger that hears directly from God and repeats the words of God to God's people. There's a lot of evidence for both sides. It can go either way. But the most important thing that we can take away from this is that every time the angel of the Lord speaks, all 48 times in the Old Testament, it is taken to be the words of God himself by the person who hears it, and it always comes to pass. It is as good as God said it, whether it is a pre-incarnate Christ or someone hearing from God, the angel of the Lord hearing from God and proclaiming his words. And look right here at this passage, Hagar says, the Lord has spoke to me. I've heard, he's heard my cries. She believes that this is either the Lord or a representative of the Lord. Here we see the Lord pursue Hagar out into the wilderness after she has been cast out. This text says that the Lord speaks to her four different times. And in verse 13, it says, she called on the Lord. She called on Yahweh. 
This is something that Abram and Sarai have failed to do to this point. They have not called on the name of the Lord. They have not given God a name like Hagar does here, where she says, you are the God that listens. She is interacting in an intimate way with God in a way that Abram and Sarah, the chosen couple, have not done. In fact, they've taken matters into their own hands. Here, Hagar gives him a name, the God who sees. And she is told to name her son Ishmael, which means the Lord listens. Why is this significant? Because until now, Hagar has not been seen. She has been objectified based on what she could give someone else. Abram and Sarai saw what they wanted, they desired it, and they took it with no regard for what was best for Hagar. And in God, she sees something different. She sees someone that sees her, that listens to her, that knows her, that has a plan for her. She says here, I have seen the one who looks after me. This is one of many things that we read in the Old Testament that is hard for us to wrap our head around. We hear him say, go back and submit to that couple that just treated you unfairly. It's hard for us to understand some of these things. It's important for us as we look at this and as we look at the other stories we're going to look at in Genesis 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, that we remember that God is the main character of Scripture. Yes, he's the author, but he is also the main character. Our theology and our focus can get off when we think that anyone else is the main character. And this is a classic case of that. If we think that Abraham is the main point, we're going to come away pretty disillusioned if we think Abraham is the main character of this story. Even though it's the middle chunk out of Genesis, the main character is still God. If the main character is Abraham, we're going to come away in despair because it's like, this is not going well. This guy is not following the plan. If we think that the main character of this story is Hagar, there's some great things we can learn from Hagar. We're going to talk more about her and marginalized people in just a minute. But if we think she's the main character, we can take our theology down some places where we miss the point. If we think that Ishmael is the main character, which some people have, and some people have extrapolated this out and taken it to mean all kinds of things about the nation of Islam today that we can take from what happened with Ishmael here, and things can get really off course and political quick when really God is the main character. Because of his nature, God sees hears and values those that the world objectifies or ignores. That is the main point. We are going to breeze very quickly through Genesis 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. There's important stuff in here. There's confusing stuff in here. There's weird stuff in here. We could have whole sermons on each chapter, but we're doing a broad overview here, and I want to make sure we focus on the main 
character. But very briefly, in Genesis 17, we see God reconfirm his commitment to Abraham again, even after all this sin, all this taking matters into their own hands. We see Genesis 17, 5 through 7, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then he enacts the practice of circumcision, a physical mark that Abraham and the men that should come after him would have a physical mark that they are set aside, that they are purified by God. Then Abraham doubts again at the end of the chapter. And he says, but what about Ishmael? Are you going to care for Ishmael? We'll see here in a couple chapters that he does indeed care for Hagar and Ishmael. Genesis 18 God promises once again that he will come and he will give a child to Abraham and Sarah. And this time he gets more specific. He says, this time next year, the angel of the Lord says, you will have a child. Genesis 18, 11, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Funny. You can laugh. Sarah shouldn't have laughed, but you can laugh at that absurd conversation. Hagar says, you are the God who sees and listens. Abraham and Sarah says, "Ah, that's not really what we said. Genesis 19, we see a very similar story to the whole business of Noah and the Nephilim from Genesis 6, where the spirit world interacts with the physical world and some weird stuff takes place. Great evil is taking place in the land. But once again, God intervenes and cares for his people. In Genesis 20, Abraham pretends Sarah is his sister to get out of trouble. Does this sound familiar? This is just the sequel. Abraham's already done this once before. Again, not trusting the Lord, taking matters into his own hand. And then in Genesis 21, Isaac, the promised son, is born. Isaac is born. At this point, Ishmael is a young man, a young teenager most likely. And there is a fight because Ishmael makes fun of or looks at Isaac with contempt and they are once again kicked out of Abraham and Sarah's household. But Hagar is provided for once again. 
If you have your Bibles open, Genesis 21, 17 says, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy right where he is. Earlier, Abraham asks, Will Ishmael be provided for? And in Genesis 21, the answer is yes. God will continue to provide for Hagar and Ishmael. I wish we had time to go into the significance of this, but I will just mention here and then I'll mention it again in just a moment in passing that this is incredible. That God sees, hears, and knows this woman and her son who should just completely be out of the narrative right now. This is bad storytelling, but it shows us the character of our God. He keeps bringing up these supposed minor characters who are on the fringes, and this is going to continue to happen, not only to show us the heart of our God, but also show us what Paul goes on and on and on about in Galatians and Romans, that it's unbelievable that Gentiles are welcomed into the faith. God's promise was for his people and through Abraham, but you will see as you read the Old Testament that God's plan was for also for all who believed. Jews and Gentiles alike, people like you and me. Psalm 31, 7, the psalmist says, I will rejoice and I will be glad because you are a God who has seen and known me. That is the character of the God that we are seeing throughout this passage and we will see throughout scripture. In these chapters, we see humanity undergo great affliction. We're going to spend some time here talking about the kinds of affliction we see in scripture and the kinds of affliction we see in our lives and in this world. We need to focus on this affliction so we can see how amazing it is that the God who made everything really does see, hear, and know us in our affliction. First is the affliction of sin. The affliction of sin. It is something that we choose to do, but it is also something that is an affliction. When we look at scripture, it is appalling to see what people called God's people do to one another and to the marginalized and to the world around them. It is also appalling when you look in the newspaper today at what humans are still doing to their world and to one another. And it is most appalling of all when we see what we are capable of when we walk in the flesh. One thing these crazy stories in the Old Testament are telling us is that when we desire and seek out autonomy from God and we go our own way, great evil and destruction can happen to us and to others. The affliction of sin. We have talked about the last couple of weeks how sin is so insidious so a part of everything that we do that we must turn and see our good God and see the depths of what he has done for us. So when we look at scripture, when we look at history, when we look on our news app, when we look at our own lives, we see sin at play. Next, we see the affliction of the suffering. 
We see the affliction of the suffering. We need to have a category for this when we look at the people and the events of scripture. As you open the scriptures, I I think there's a lot of reasons why we think this way uh, that we probably don't have time to go into. But when we look at scripture, we are looking for good people and bad people. We're looking for saints and we're looking for sinners. And we do the same in our lives. We do the same in any interpersonal conflict. We do the same as we read the news app. We are looking for who's good and who's bad. And not only that, but in our very divided culture that we find ourselves in, we are trying to make our side, whatever it is, out to be good and everyone else is bad. We need another category because it's a biblical category and it's a real life category and that's the category of suffering. Suffering. As we look at this story, we need to see the suffering that each person is going through. We see someone like Hagar. We see a whole book in the Bible about Ruth. We see these people from scripture that are just suffering in a fallen world, just like you and me. And sometimes they're faithful in it, and sometimes they're not, just like you and me. This category of suffering and remembering the affliction of suffering is so important as we read passages of scripture. Not only do we need to have this category as we turn to scripture and the news, we need to have this category for our spouse and our roommate and our coworkers and people at church. Do we sin against one another? Of course. Are we sometimes treated unfairly? Sometimes are we treated unjustly? Sometimes are we made to suffer because of someone else's sin? Of course. But also there is great suffering and hurt in this world. Next, we see the affliction of the marginalized. Some suffer just because they're on the margins of society. And there is always people on the margins of society. We see this in Hagar. We see this in God's plan for the Gentiles. We see this in our world that some just start out on the outside. We need to see God's heart for the marginalized. We need to see and hear the words of Jesus as he speaks about those that are seen and heard and known by God. Some are marginalized because they are not in the majority culture. There is always these people in our world. And we can disagree Politically, we can disagree on our politics of how to help people that are on the margins or how to help those that are in financial need or otherwise. But one thing is sure. We need to reflect the heart of God as we wrestle through as individuals and as a church and as a society, how we will match God's heart for the world and how we interact with the world. We must obey his commands to help those who he sees and knows and listens to. There are marginalized people in this community. There are marginalized people at the University of Iowa. There are marginalized people. There could be marginalized people in this very church. And it may not be out of any ill will or any grave injustice. Those, there's those two. It may just be that we don't 
notice. And I fear that there are things that we can miss here as a church. And here's why. I mess up here myself. I mess up here myself. I think a lot of things that are true but unhelpful when it comes to maybe people living on the margins. In this particular church, I think, well, people are friendly. They like being together. So we're a friendly church, which is true. I also think, well, we're a smallish church with one service, and you can see everyone that's here. So everyone gets seen and known and introduced to people. And largely, that's true. I also meet someone or see someone and I'm like, I should go meet them. And then I assume they've probably already met Joe and Shirley. And that's probably true. They usually have. I have literally met people that say, oh yeah, I live in Joe and Shirley's basement. Like, great to meet you. All those things are true and good. We love the people in our community. We love the people in our church. We love the people in our community group. But there's a danger here of getting too comfortable and thinking that everybody knows everyone. And we can miss someone. As we've been doing member meetings, we've been hearing one thing uh, pretty loud and clear as we meet with the members of the church. Uh, Many, many people have said, I feel very connected to the people in my community group, but I don't feel like I know people outside of my community group. It is wonderful that we have a community group network that the majority of people are in, but A, not everyone is in one, And B, even though we're a smallish church, it is still big enough that you don't necessarily know everyone and you don't have to know everyone. We need to make sure that we are not leaving anyone on the margins in our community, in our university community, at the University of Iowa, or in our church. There are 109 countries represented here at the University of Iowa and every single one of them is marginalized. Because the majority of people do not share their language or do not share their skin color or do not share their culture. And we can reflect God's heart for these people as we love them well. And lastly, the affliction of those who have been treated unjustly. The affliction of those that have been treated unjustly. Some are on the margins just because they're not in the majority of culture. Some are marginalized or afflicted because they have been sinned against by people they have been sinned against or they are in an unfair system. And so they've been treated unfairly. In Psalm 82, verse 3, it says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. This is a cry out to God, but it's also a challenge for the church to care for those that have been treated unfairly. For some of you, this may be your story. Maybe you have been treated unfairly, abused by others, marginalized by others, at no fault of your own. We want this to be a safe place for you where we reflect the heart of God to you and to one another, and we see one another, and we hear one another, and we really know one another. So what do we do with this information? What do we do with this information that God sees, hears, and knows, and that people face all these different kinds of affliction and more? Two things as we close here. First, we need to look to Christ in our affliction. We need to look to Christ in our affliction because here's the thing. 
He sees, he hears, and he knows, but we forget it. We feel unseen. We feel unheard. We still feel isolated and lonely at times, sometimes because of something inside of us, sometimes because we truly are not being listened to or heard by the people around us. We need to turn to him in our affliction. Whether it's our own sin, sin done against us, if we feel like we are living on the margins, we're not in the majority culture, whatever it is, we need to take that affliction to God. He sees He hears and he knows you and your pain. And he is just waiting for you to turn to him like Hagar did and said, you are a God who listens to me, sees me. And she called out to Yahweh. We need to call out to Yahweh in our pain and in our affliction. Secondly, we need to look out for and advocate for others in their affliction. We, in our society, are so concerned with how everything affects us, we don't think about how things affect others. We need to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. We need to see people, hear people, know people, to show them that God sees, hears, and knows. The Bible tells us from the beginning that we are made in the image of God. That means that we are his ambassadors, his representatives to show the world what he is like. When the world sees us individually and collectively, what do they learn about our God? James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Second Corinthians 1.4 says he comforts us in our affliction so we can comfort others in their affliction. God gives us comfort as we turn to him so then we can turn and be a comfort for others as well. This is what he's called us to. It is easier to read about what justice is or isn't than be people of justice. It is easier to read books by marginalized people about their experience than to actually get to know people on the margins. The Bible commands us as believers to be hospitable, to literally welcome the stranger so they don't feel like a stranger anymore. So as we see this story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and now Isaac, let's look for and think about and rejoice in and be glad in the God who sees, hears, and knows the affliction that we and others go through. Would you pray with me? Please join me in praying that we would be this kind of people in this kind of church. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have seen us, you have heard our cries for help, and you know us. Father, thank you for showing me your love through my brothers and sisters here. God, thank you for making us in your image, and God, we want to reflect that image, and we want to reflect that 
heart that you have for people, especially on the margins of our world and our society. God, would you help us to find help in our affliction so then we can comfort others in their affliction. God, help us to be more aware of the people around us and help us to call out to you in our time of need and help us to call out to you on behalf of others. God, I pray that as the world sees us, they would see the love we have for one another and the good news that we have to share with them in word and in deed. Thank you for the opportunity to share that love with one another tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.